Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast is brought to you by ProTranscript.com. Thank you very much for joining me on today's show, and especially if this is the first time that you have listened to the Essential Tennis Podcast, welcome, and I appreciate you downloading this episode. I am going to be giving away a free Flip Ultra HD video camera later this week. Today is Monday, Monday the 8th of March. And on the 15th, a week from today, I'm going to be announcing the winner. Stay tuned. I'm going to tell you guys how to enter that contest sometime during today's show. But until then, just please enjoy the interview that I have. Today's show is excellence. We're going to be discussing power versus control. So listen to this tennis instruction and the conversation I have with my guest. Hopefully it's going to be instructional and informative to you and give you something to work on that can really help make your tennis game better. And sometime during the show, I'm going to tell you how you can also enter to win that free flip video camera. So until then, let's go ahead and get started with the show. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. My guest today on the Essential Tennis Podcast is Dave the Kaz Kozlowski. Kaz, welcome to the show. Hey, Ian. Great to be here with you. This is exciting. I know you're into your third year. You've had over 100 of these podcasts. Uh, you are on the cutting edge. You know that, my boy. So thanks for having me on. And what do you want to talk about tonight? Well, let's um, let's kick things off by telling my listeners a little bit about you. I, I want to make sure that any people who are not familiar with you and your background know exactly where you're coming from and, and how much expertise you have in, in the game of tennis. So, so please tell my listeners a little bit about your, your background in journalism and broadcast and instruction. Oh, I'm a, I'm a humble guy, and I'm smiling as you ask me to do this, but uh, anything that sounds impressive is only because I've hung around the industry long enough and a lot of people have felt sorry for me and have been good to me. So that gave me a chance to move up through the ranks. But I've been uh, teaching for, I don't want to say how many decades, but it's approaching four decades soon. I was lucky enough to get into the industry and to be one of the first 17 master pros in the world. And that came about because I was up there early for nominations and uh, I got it before it was a lot tougher to get these days. I uh, was very fortunate to uh, have enough friends in the industry to vote me in to USPTA National Pro of the Year, and that really was a credit to everyone that's helped me along the way more than it was just for me. And as I addressed a group about this award, and certainly I was uh, very honored with it, and I vividly remember getting this letter and I thought it was just kind of a form letter from the USPTA but I, I did open it and I started reading it and then all of a sudden it was hard to not finish reading it but I was so emotionally distracted that I had to start from the beginning again and I remember sharing the joy with family members and my wife 
And it was a very proud, joyous moment. But then a half hour later from that, Ian, I'm on the tennis court and I'm teaching and I get that same high, that same emotional uh, input that this is as good as it gets. So (laughs) as good as it was getting that award, you get it every day when you're in the teaching industry, when you're relating to somebody and you, you quickly find out that you're not teaching tennis to people, but you're teaching people through tennis. Hmm. And I immediately knew that, uh, that's the award. But as I told so many thousands of people, this is, it's a numbers game and there are thousands of guys uh, like you, you're going to have an opportunity to get this, but one is chosen a year. So there are so many guys in the field that will uh, have the ability and the background and the accomplishments to get it, but it's a numbers game and they may not. So when I received that award, I dedicated to all the guys that were better than I am that are not going to get this award just because it's a numbers game. But as I had mentioned, people have been good to me in the USTA in the year 2000, honored me as USTA broadcaster of the year. I had no right getting that because I had no formal training and everything I do is hands-on, learning on the spot, trial and error, but it was a passion, I think, that came out, and I've thoroughly enjoyed that opportunity going to all ends of uh, this country and and in Europe also that I would never have that opportunity in meeting people. And it's a funny thing, when you have a mic in your hand, all of a sudden people will talk to you. So it's, (laughs) it's been a it's been a great experience, Ian. Well, you're you're a man after my own heart. You, you not only really enjoy the game of tennis, but you are a person who is passionate about media as well and, and communicating your your enthusiasm to others. And so I, I, I'm really happy to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my honor. Great to be here. Thanks. So let's go ahead and get to our, our topic today, which I, I, I think this is going to be an, an outstanding show. And it, it's a kind of a debate or a, a question, a topic for the ages uh, as it pertains to, to tennis and especially to those who listen to my show who are recreational level players. They're, they're club level players, people who are, are looking for any way that they can possibly improve their tennis game. And so often the question gets asked, what's, what's more important, being able to hit the ball with power or with control? And it's kind of a Kind of a, a trick question a little bit. I mean, obviously, uh, anybody would say, well, I'd like to have both. But oftentimes when players are just beginning and they have to kind of ch- pick and choose what they're working on, I think a lot of times amateur players kind of get faced with the question, what, what should I work on first? And uh, control versus versus power, I, I think, is, is kind of a conundrum. So why don't you kind of kick us off here with some initial thoughts on that, that question. What, what is your, what's your first reaction to that question? Well, my first reaction is, first of all, I thoroughly enjoy your audience. So if they're recreation club players, I know the passion they have for the game and they're all hungry to improve, to find ways to enjoy it more. So this is a great topic. It's an ongoing question, power or control, what comes first. First of all, to be successful, you need both. And let me share a, a thought here that uh, to be successful in any venue in life, in business, in corporations, in education, you need to have a respect for the tradition before you. And mm-hmm. in tennis, you need to have a tradition and a respect for the tradition of the game. 
But you also need to have a, a healthy welcome for changes in the game and new technology. However, I think that most players and with the audience with whom you're dealing, good recreation players, athletes, but maybe folks that are not going to make the top one percentile of the professional ranks, they are better to get a foundation in and to get the fundamentals first. And it's so important that they establish a base. And that base consists of rhythm. And it also consists of learning proper footwork and movement. In today's game, where all the emphasis is on speed and power, oftentimes players find themselves not being able to handle routine situations. They're not bad in the extraordinary because they're taught to turn and run and to scamper to the ball. But many times it's just a routine shot down the middle and you need to have some motor memory so that you've produced the same shot thousands of times. But this doesn't happen at the club level because time doesn't allow them and they're competitive. They rather hit five minutes of warmups and then get right into match play. So they never really get the shots motor memorized, but it's so important that they try to get a shot that's repeatable. And by repeatable, I mean being able to produce a strong resemblance to the previous shot several times in a row so that it's a motor memory type thing. And if you watch other sports like basketball, when someone is working on his foul shots, he is going to stand in the same spot, not move more than two or three inches and just release 50 shots in a row. Some of the greatest golfers in the game like uh, Gary Player will go out there and hit the same repeatable shot 150 times from 50 yards just trying to get the motor memory. Paul Azinger on the Ryder Cup as a player and a coach, and I have seen him do this. Both Gary Player and Paul Azinger were at the club where I was the tennis director, and they would come in for golf exhibitions and seminars. He would take 20 balls, Ian, and put them around a two-foot area from the cup. He would not do another thing in golf that day until he was able to sink 22-footers. Well, that sounds like (laughs) a piece of cake, doesn't it? But uh, they do miss. So it's the importance of getting a repeatable shot. And I think that players really need to have an idea where the racket is finishing. I remember sitting with some legendary coaches in the game, Ian Crickerton, who was from uh, South from New Zealand at Davis Cupper, and really a fine college coach, Bill Tim, one of the legends in the game. They really stress the importance of knowing where the racket is finishing with a repeatable type of excursion. And we've gotten a bit away from that. It's very tough for today's players to watch TV tennis, to watch the pros, because they're seeing extreme moves, and it's almost as if it's extreme sports, but they're not playing extreme sports when they go out to play. They're playing routine, so they need to get more familiar with routine moves. And if you watch the great players of the game, Justine Anna, who is as pure as they come on the female side, and Roger Federer, as pure as they come on the male side, they have a rhythmic side shuffle step. There, it's so important for players to know there is a arrival time. And a lot of times we're taught to get there quickly, to get there early, and they get there too soon. And all of a sudden they have to stop the move and there's dead time and it's hard to adjust. But if you watch the great players, it's almost as if they're playing a basketball side shuffle step guarding a man. They're taking two, three rhythmic steps, side shuffle facing the net, then turn and hit on both sides, the forehand and backhand. 
And I really believe if the average player can learn that rhythm, that everything starts to fall in place. And sometimes, if nothing improves except just that rhythmic footwork, the game is going to improve for them. Their shots are going to get better. Their rhythm's going to get better. The arrival time is going to be more accurate. They're going to find themselves being in a better strike zone to contact the ball, and they're establishing a rhythm. Great, great stuff in there, guys. And one thing that really jumped out at me was you were talking about how oftentimes amateur players can come up with an incredible shot at, at one point in time, but then miss a shot, uh, you know, two or three shots later. That, that's completely routine. And as a both a teacher and a player, when I go go out to play, I don't think there's anything more frustrating to me than for me myself or one of my students to to miss the easy shots to miss the the routine shots that that should be repeatable as you keep saying or, or we should have a rhythm to those shots so let, let's talk about how how can my listeners better obtain that rhythm and you talked about basketball players practicing the free throw and you talked about golfers practicing two foot putts so what's the what's the equivalent for that and and especially keeping in mind the people who are listening to this show are are oftentimes uh, not members of clubs where where they're able to go and 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 hire a professional instructor to actually run them through you know drills and and have that expertise in person. Some of them do, but for for my listeners who maybe don't have that luxury, how can they go out there and train themselves to have this repeatable follow through and, and this rhythm that you're talking about? Well, I think that is a, a great question. It's all about motor memory, so that when the ball comes, the big downfall in any sports, and if it, if it happens in golf, it really happens in tennis when the ball is lying there in a golf swing or the ball is coming in a tennis bounce, when you try to do something to the ball, when you try to hit it, that's when various body parts get involved with the <laughs> swing and uh, too many body parts are uh, being involved or the wrong body parts are, are, are too active. So the idea is to literally, and the pros do this because they have sparring partners, they're hitting thousands of balls every day in a non-competitive situation so that it just becomes instinctive and it becomes motor memorized. The, the best thing is to try to set a pattern, and it's a proven study that a new habit will be formed after 1,800 reps. So if you break that down to a month, 30 days, if you do this habit 60 times a day for 30 days, that's 18 with a couple of zeros, 1,800 times, then it becomes instinctive. Hmm. So when that ball is arriving on your right side of the forehand, you're not trying to do something to it. You're not trying to think of what you want to do to it. It's just a motor memory. And simple motor memory activities can be, and I'm a strong believer that on the forehand, you really want to have more upper dominance out of the shoulder than you want to out of the hands. The hands are needed to locate the ball, to find the ball. But once you find the ball, the lower hand or the lower arm from the wrist, from the elbow to the wrist stay still, and there's more movement out of the shoulder, the bigger muscle. So simply what you want to try to do, and if uh, you buy into this concept, Uh, anatomically when we stand still there's a gap between the shoulder and the twin uh, the shoulder and the chin that is the gap between the shoulder and the chin is about six to eight inches 
So on a daily basis, if you just merely take the hitting shoulder, let's say you're right-handed, take the right shoulder and touch the chin 60 times a day so that it's automatic with a racket in your hand or without a racket in your hand. Many of these motor memory exercises can be done in the office, can be done on the road in a hotel, they can be done in your house where it's not needed to have a racket, but you're actually getting the motor memory of the motion taking place 60 times a day, 30 days, your right shoulder travels, touches the chin. That's one. Right shoulder travels, touches the chin. That's two. Another good exercise is to actually swing. And as you swing, grab, catch the rackets in the left hand so that you're giving yourself uh, a reference on extending the arm. And we're so involved with power. And you'll see some of the great players finish in a bent elbow position on the forehand. But Mm -hmm. before they've gotten there, Ian, you and I know that, you certainly know that there's a period of extension so that they're extending, but it's happening so quickly that the average viewer sees the quick snap of the elbow and the wrist, and they feel that this is the way they hit the ball. Eventually, eventually, that's the way to finish uh, at the extraordinary and the high level, but leading up to that, you can't go wrong, and you'll see the Williams sisters go back to their roots and actually grab, catch the racket on some of their forehand finishes. Are they doing it to correct something from their previous shot? I don't know. Uh, are they doing it to extend out, to form a good habit? I don't know that either. But whatever they're doing, they're actually practicing extension. So if our listeners can 60 times let the right shoulder touch the chin, at, their, at the same time they're doing that, catch the racket in the left hand, all of a sudden they're getting motor memory on what the excursion should be taking place on the forehand. So the next time the ball comes, they're not trying to do something to it. It's just an automatic motor memory response. Something I'd like to hit on that you talked about that that really hit a chord with me. Uh, A couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that when amateur players, when they see the ball coming towards them, oftentimes they, they make the mistake of actually trying to do something to it. And I'd like to uh, kind of go back to that for a second. I, I first heard this this concept on a, a golf podcast. I'm actually a golfer as well. Beautiful, and- beautiful. <laughs> I, 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 I did not steal this from a golfer, but I use that concept because if you try to do something to the golf ball, you are in trouble, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, the average player, if you try to do something to it, you're in trouble again. Our biggest our biggest fear in tennis, if you ask a number of players, the biggest fear at the, at the most entry level is being afraid of missing the ball when he or she swings. So the attempt is, I'm going to make sure I'm not going to miss that ball, baby. And then all of a sudden, they've got to make a lot of adjustments and compromises to just find where the ball is because they're, they're so inhibited about missing the ball that all of a sudden things don't flow, they don't become a motor-memorized activity. So, just like the golfer, interesting you picked that up, you really cannot try to do something to the ball. That's when things are going to break down. Yeah. But I interrupted you, so no, uh, no finish your, your, your good thoughts. <laughs> well, the, uh, uh, the instructor that I had heard talking about this, and, and this just really struck me when I, when I heard him say it, uh, the person who was interviewing him had asked him, if 
uh, if you had to choose one thing that amateur golfers do poorly, what, you know, what would it be that, that you think they should improve? And he said, amateur golfers so often try to hit the ball instead of learning a good stroke and, and good technique and simply allowing the ball to get in the way of that swing. Um, and, and that just struck me as being so profound that that amateur players oftentimes, uh, for, for instructors like you and me, uh, it, it's very easy to pick out a lower-level player because they're oftentimes so tense and so tight. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on on how having a repeatable swing and, and and having that kind of the muscle memory and having that grooved into play goes kind of hand in hand with being relaxed and, and loose and, and more efficient physically. Well, let me uh, first of all say my primary goal with anybody on the tennis court is to make sure that he or she has a good time. And uh, I never want to turn them off with too much technique, too much instruction. Hmm. Uh, that's the most fun for me because, uh, for us, it's a science, and I oftentimes will ask teaching pros, how many of you teaching pros are teaching for selfish reasons? And everybody is a bit uncomfortable, won't raise his hand, and I <laughs> raise my hand and say, well, the obvious is we got to do it for a living. Wouldn't the world be great if we could teach everybody who wanted to play and not have to charge? But uh, that's not the real world. How many of you are actually selfish that you want to learn more than your student is learning. And uh, a few more will raise their hand. I raise my hand because my goal when I go out teaching someone is to walk off that court learning as much, if not more, than he or she has learned so that I'm learning from them. I can pass that on to future students or I'm finding new, more innovative ways of doing it. I need to get back to your question that you asked me which was what again, Ian? I, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I was curious uh, on, on your... I had, I, had a, I had a better answer than I had a response to the question, <laughs> but I, I, I know the question. I just uh, ask it again if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I was curious what, what your thoughts were on, on the relationship between amateur players trying to, to do something to the ball or, or, or trying to hit it too much uh, as opposed to just having a repeatable swing. I was curious what your thoughts were on the connection between that and being loose and, and relaxed and, and being able to be consistent through uh, staying relaxed. I mean, we've all seen Federer play and how easy he makes it look. Uh, it looks like his body is just, you know, he looks like a, some kind of dancer out there. He's just so, um, it's beautiful very to watch. Very smooth, very, very rhythmic. There's, yeah. there's a real cadence that he brings to tennis, which uh, he, he is a great model to watch. And he is so effortless in all of his moves. I will answer the question that you did ask me. And I, I think one of the key things is for them to try to minimize the body movement. And it's, uh, it's amazing. With your golf background, you know this for a fact that some people cannot swing a golf club and retain their balance. Mm. The, the golf club takes the body all over the place. And this happens certainly in tennis where people swing and all of a sudden, they lose some balance. And in the process of losing the balance, they've got to make adjustments or compromises with other body parts to try to get the body back in balance. Well, this happens to the great players, but they can control the balance and regain balance much better. One of the goals needs to be how well can you swing and actually hold your balance in place. One of the greatest all-time and I'm not saying just tennis coach because this guy was touted by Sports Illustrated 
as being the best coach in sports, not just tennis, in sports. And his name is Welby Van Horn. He's still alive. He's out in Palm Springs. He was the mentor of several outstanding world-class players. One of them, and he taught in Puerto Rico, one of them was uh, Charlie Passarell. And if you ever watched Charlie Passarell, I watched him play 30 years ago when uh, three days in a row he had wins over Ash, over Laver, and Emerson. Bang, bang, bang. And one of the key things with Van Horn was to try to hold the balance in place with some deliberate extension for three seconds. And, of course, I have used it for decades after hearing uh, him say this, was to hold balance and hold the racket in place for three seconds. One thing that I try to do with students when they're hitting to one another. So, Ian, if you and I are going out to rally and you hit the ball and it bounces and I stroke it back to you and you're at the baseline and I'm at the baseline, I'm going to, in my mind, try to hold that balance until my ball lands on your side of the court, then I'll come back to a ready, then I'll come back to a neutral position. And if you get players to do this, and they can do this by themselves, and I learned my tennis on the recreation courts, and we had to find ways where there's a wall, you know, baby, there is a way. So (laughs) anybody can do this with another practice partner, but that's a little tough. And that's another episode in itself that so many players practice for themselves, but they don't practice for their sparring partner, their their practice partner. And if they would realize the more they hit to this player, the more balls they get coming back, and it becomes beneficial for both. But getting back to the comment is to actually hold your balance in place. One thing that I do, and you had talked about trying to relax, on the forehand, and most times if somebody is taking private training with me, I will spend two minutes or so working on lead-ups, i.e. a two-handed forehand. And one of the things that I really try to emphasize is a continuous motion in two areas, continuous motion in the footwork and a continuous motion in the backswing. So the feet are moving and the racket's moving, and we're referring to a loop right now Mm -hmm. so that they learn the rhythm of when to take it back the speed at which to take it back. So I'll I'll have everybody that really wants to try to improve buy into this, spend a few minutes working on the side shuffle step delivery and a two-handed lead-up. And what it does, it gets them closer to the ball. They've got to bring the strike zone in more. Anatomically, they got to bend the knees. They've got to get lower. They find themselves coiling the shoulders and then uncoiling the shoulders. And all this stuff is a pleasant lead up to a one-handed forehand. So I'll have them do that for two or three minutes. But then I'll have them go to one hand. And you'll have to listen to this closely because it sounds inane. It sounds (laughs) stupid. But they will hold the racket in the right hand, Ian, swing, contact the ball. But the moment they contact it, let go of the right hand, catch it in the left, pull it as far out as they can with the left so that they do not try to direct guide the racket that their shoulder doesn't get locked in, uh, they don't get muscular in the mm-hmm. shoulder. Some of the best forehands they hit that day are these shots where they literally hit the ball with the right hand, grab, catch in the left hand, so they're letting go of the racket. Now, I see this tremendously helping players in learning how to relax the arm. 
and it sounds silly, but what they're doing is allowing the racket head to become more dominant, and the racket head starts doing some work. So after they do this for a couple of minutes, then they do the same grab and catch, but they retain the right hand on, and all of a sudden they have that motor memory swing where it's the same swing repeated each time. Well, Kaz, um, I, I, I want to get to at least one more question here before we run out of time. And on- Absolutely. Well, I, didn't you ever hear, there are no clocks in heaven, nor are there any clocks on the tennis court? <laughs> I never look at a clock That's, when we're talking tennis. Well, unfortunately, I, I have to watch it. I wish I didn't uh, because this is I have kind of a tradition on the podcast of of especially when guests are on the show, of time just flying by. And that's how I know I've got a good guest on the show. It's gone by incredibly fast. But I, I've got one more question I'd love to, to get your thoughts on. And earlier in, in the, the show, when you and I were talking, you mentioned that both control and power do have their place in, in tennis. And, and all of our time so far has been spent talking about getting a rhythm, having a repeatable swing, uh, getting repeatable results. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on when, when is it appropriate? Let's say we have a, uh, an amateur a club level player, uh, a rec player who is, who is really starting to become a student of the game. They're working hard on their tennis. Uh, they're hitting with the wall with practice partners. They're working hard on, on being consistent. When is it appropriate for this player to then start working on, on developing weapons and, and being able to hit with more power? Uh, that's a very good question. And the, the answer that I may have to give is that uh, it has to come quickly because they see all the speed in the game. They want to reproduce that speed. They, they want to certainly emulate that type of game. So uh, that's got to be exposed quickly. And I uh, have a, a friend that we would discuss a lot of tennis. He's been in the industry as long as I have and uh, a former great college coach. But he would spend a lot of time on this ball control where they would have to hit five, six balls behind the service line. And that sounds like a piece of cake until some players try to do it. But uh, <laughs> So you've got to be able to keep the ball at will behind the service line five, six times in a row. And they would spend a lot of time working on control and trying to re- reproduce the same swing, the same shots. Then he would tell them at the second half of working on the forehand, and he might do this on the forehand or backhand, it doesn't matter. Now I want you with the same swing, trying to keep the same body control, trying to have almost the same finish. Now start to allow the racket head to speed up. Now let me see how hard you can hit it. And one of the key things is that players, and we have all levels of, of club play or all levels of intermediate. Uh, some players never really develop the confidence to allow the racket head to speed up. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can ask a very simple question. Should the racket speed up or slow down as it approaches the ball? Well, everybody knows that the racket should speed up, but some players may not know that or appreciate that. So you, you absolutely need to feel that as the racket gets Closer to the ball, you want the racket to be speeding up. So it's a slow start, a medium pace middle there where the racket's gaining some speed, but at the end, the racket is speeding up. So I think it's important that when they warm up and they spend time on consistency, that they're also allowed to go back to the baseline and try to hit hard offensive shots. Now, one thing that seems to help as well as anything is that 
And this sounds extraordinary, and it's an, uh, certainly an overload principle. You want them to not hit the ball out of bounds, obviously, but you want them to get it as deep to the baseline as you can because depth allows anybody to play with better players and they can't take advantage of you. You're on even terms, neutral turf. But if one puts a towel or a target six feet behind the baseline, and now I tell John, John, let's rally the ball, but I want you to try to hit that ball so it lands near the towel. Yes, it's six feet out. I know that, John. You know that. But that's where I want you to think that you're aiming. And all of a sudden, he starts to speed up the racket. He starts to uh, instinctively to get the ball deeper, hits it harder, but he also aims it higher. So without really programming in, now you're working on a lot of power. He's keeping the control, but he's allowing the racket head to speed up. And 90% of the balls do not go outside of the baseline. Hmm. They fall halfway between the service line and the baseline, maybe maybe a third of the way behind the midcourt that they're five, six feet in the baseline. So important to do both. And this same coach that I referred to, Jim Frederick, an old friend, he would have a practice one day a week for his Michigan State team, a Big Ten school, respectable tennis. How many balls do you think he would give every twosome to go out and practice that day? One. One ball between Ian <laughs> and me. So you that day, you obviously worked on some ball control. So he mixed it nicely, and a lot of our players probably need to go out with six balls max to keep the ball in play, and then they can start to speed it up and get some confidence to hit out. But they need both, no doubt about it. Although, although if I had a choice between a high school kid who had power but not accuracy or consistency and a kid who kept more balls in play, if I want a w- winning record that year, I might opt to play him over the guy who misses more but has the power. And that's not going to motivate any of our listeners. I know that, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it tells the story. Well, Kaz, thank you so much for, for spending this time with me. And you're, you're a perfect fit for this show. Your, your enthusiasm for the game and, and instruction uh, of the game is very, very obvious and, and evident. And, and I know my listeners are going to enjoy listening to this conversation a great deal. So thank you so much for, for being on the show with me. Hey, I like your listeners. And let me tell your listeners something. Remember, in tennis scoring, love means nothing. But love of the game means everything. You keep alive your love of the game as you do. You have your tennis. Listeners keep alive their love of the game. And I love you all. Thanks for having me on. Everybody, please check out IndieTennis.com. That's I-N-D-I-E, IndieTennis.com. That's where you can catch Kaz's material. And uh, he's got some, some audio content there that you can check out. Definitely go, go check that out. And, and Kaz, I, I hope that I can have you back on the show again in the future. It will be my pleasure. I will look forward to it. All right. That does it for this week's episode of the Essential Tennis Podcast, episode number 108. Thank you very much for joining me today. And let's go ahead and get to the Flipcam giveaway in order to enter yourself into the drawing for a free Flipcam. And there's lots of other prizes to be given away as well. If you haven't checked that out yet, go to EssentialTennis.com slash contest, and there's a list of all the prizes I'm going to be giving away. 
including that flip cam. In order to enter, all you guys need to do is go to EssentialTennis.com slash flip, F-L-I-P, and you'll be taken to just a little form to fill out, just three things, your name, your email address, and whether or not you've heard the podcast before, that's it, and you'll be entered automatically into the drawing. And a week from today, on episode number 109, I will be announcing all of the winners in that contest. So good luck to you. And thank you very much for listening today and for your entry. I'm looking forward to giving away all those prizes. And if this was your first time listening, I release this show every Monday. Every single Monday, I put out a new episode all about improving your tennis game and tennis instruction. Check it out on iTunes. It's the number one rated tennis instruction podcast on iTunes. And you can subscribe to it there. Definitely the easiest way to get the show every week. All right, well, that does it for this week. Take care, everybody, and good luck with your tennis.